Hello, fellow dog-powered sports enthusiasts. This is Chelsea Murray, and you are listening to Positively Dog-Powered, a podcast that dives deep into the real world of positive reinforcement training and dog-powered sports. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Positively Dog-Powered. I want to start by thanking everybody for all of the support. I've gotten lots of messages and emails from listeners that are grateful for the content and have enjoyed listening along so far. So I just wanted to let you know that I really appreciate all of the kind words and the support. If you didn't know this already, I'm a big fan of positive reinforcement. So if you're someone who's been listening along and enjoying the content so far, I would really appreciate you taking just a few moments to give us a five-star review. It helps us connect with other like-minded folks and, of course, spread the word about positive reinforcement training and dog-powered sports. And just to let you know how much I appreciate you, for all of you leaving us five-star reviews, we will be entering you into a raffle. We're going to be giving away some special Positively Dog-powered swag just for you. So be sure to head over to the podcast platform that you listen on and tell us what you think. Starting a podcast is definitely a new endeavor for me, and I'm learning a lot. I'm having to buy new equipment, figure out how to use it, and connect with other dog-powered sports enthusiasts all over the world. And don't get me wrong, I've definitely enjoyed it, and I'm so glad that I started it. But I just wanted to let you know that it takes a little bit of time out of my schedule and does cost me some money. So I decided to set up a Patreon page, and this gives you the opportunity, if you're enjoying the podcast, to chip in for as low as $3 a month, and that's going to help me not only improve my skills and improve my equipment, which is going to give you a better learning experience, but it also helps me support the hosting fees. So if you've been enjoying it and want to get some behind-the-scenes content, some special training videos, some additional content from our interviewees, then head over to the Patreon page. It's www.patreon.com forward slash positively dog powered and see if there's a tier that might offer you some of the benefits that you'd like to see. And if it doesn't, let us know. We're open to changing the different tier benefits. So thank you for listening. Thank you for the support. Be sure to hit subscribe. And now let's jump into this week's interview. This is a really special one for me. Some of you might know, but I share my life with Alaskan Malamutes. So I'm a huge fan of the breed. And this week's guest is one as well. She is not only a breeder and owner of Alaskan Malamutes, but obviously she engages in dog-powered sports. For years, she has been working her Malamutes in harness when she's not spending time in the show ring and raising puppies. And she actually made history by running a full team of AKC-registered Alaskan Malamutes, many of which were champions or went to finish their championship after running the Iditarod. How cool is that? It's something that I love, proving that show dogs can be working dogs. So enough for me. Let's go ahead and dive into this week's episode. So for today's episode, I have another awesome guest with me who has made some history in the dog sport world when she took a team of AKC registered Alaskan Malamutes and ran the 1994 Iditarod. And this awesome woman is Nancy Russell, who breeds and shows dogs out of Stormcloud Alaskan Malamutes. Nancy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. <laughs> 
So this is a pretty big accomplishment that you achieved with your dogs. How did you get started in the breed? You started off with a, a show dog, I imagine, and your team grew from there. But talk to us a little bit about how you got started in Malamutes. Um, well, actually, I saw my first Malamute. We were at a barbecue at Bob's sister's house in Madison, and this beautiful big dog came over and, of course, wanted to have what we were having. <laughs> and I found out he was an Alaskan Malamute. Um, not too long after that, we were at a family reunion in Poinette, Wisconsin, and my cousin had a puppy, Alaskan Malamute. I asked him where he got it, and he told me it was only a few miles from his house. So we went over there and purchased the last puppy in the litter for $25. <laughs> that was Russell Zivetti Rose, who produced 11 champions. Oh, my goodness. But you got to remember wow. that was back in the... That was back in the 1960s. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I never, I I had always wanted a dog. My parents wouldn't let me have one. Said we lived in town that can't have dogs in town. Um, so I, after Bob and I were married and moved to the country in 64, one of the things I wanted to do was get a dog. Um, we started out with a German Shepherd, bought him out of the newspaper. And Ed, I turned out to be so badly dysplastic that it wasn't safe to have him around our children. So we parted with him and then we got the Alaskan Malamute. Um, I took her to obedience training and the obedience instructor said to me, why don't you take her to the dog show in Milwaukee? And he, he gave me an entry blank, showed me how to fill it out. I took it. Turned out to be an Alaskan Malamute specialty. She was in the novice class, one first out of three dogs, and I was hooked. But I also saw there this beautiful nine-month-old Alaskan Malamute puppy shown by Lois Ullman, and that was Glacier Stormcloud. And um, I asked her um, if she would let me breed Betty to her, and she said, well, she wasn't impressed with Betty particularly. But she said, send me her pedigree and get her hips x-rayed and we'll talk about it. So she cleared, her hips cleared, I sent Lois the pedigree and she wrote and said to her she would, she would go ahead. Well, we had the puppies, eight of them. I think we sold one for $50. Bob traded one, we traded one for a gun. Um, <laughs> I had no idea, no idea how you did this. And Lois took the rest of the puppies to Chicago and sold them. And I said to her, if you ever want to sell bear, I, I would like to buy him. Well, she called me up and said, I decided to sell him. I think his brother will be just as good or better. And she owed me for the puppies, <laughs> which he had sold, but I hadn't gotten the money yet. <laughs> and so we went down that night and bought him and brought him home. And so that's how we got started. And Lois was my mentor, wonderful mentor. She helped with showing. She helped with breeding. Um, I We also had neighbors, close neighbors, I found out, uh, were Ralph and Marquita Schmidt from Silver Slide Kennel. And they were helpful to a certain extent. but 
Marquita was going to write a book about Malmets, and so she didn't want to tell me too much about them. So, uh, and they knew Paul Volcker, which is where they got their Malmets. That was the Malut line. And so I had a hard time getting information from her. So I started reading Arctic books to try to get information about the dogs. And that's how I found out about their working ability and what they should be able to pull and what they should be able to do. Um, and um, I must say that Bear was not a good sled dog. Um, the only time he pulled was when we were in parades and everybody pl plotted for him. <laughs> then he pulled, otherwise he wasn't much. Mama Vetti pulled, but their offspring did much better. Um, so that's basically how I got started. In, in 1973, when the, it became known about the that they started the very first Iditarod race, this seemed to me the place that Malmutes belonged. This was a thousand miles across Alaska, which was their homeland. It was gonna be hard trails. It was gonna be a camping trip where they carried a lot of weight, like the Malmutes were free dogs. Um, so that's what started my interest in the Iditarod and started with me of the idea of hopefully someday having an Iditarod team. Yeah. And it took a, a lot of work to get you guys there and a lot of time <laughs> and a lot of training. When did you start, you know, getting a little more serious about that, that dream and, and really working towards an, the Iditarod? Well, the local Malmute club that Ralph and Marquita Schmidt and um, a couple of other people and myself started the, the Alaskan Malmute Club of Wisconsin. We started doing weight pulls right away. That was one of our outing, uh, our projects. The Tri-State Alaskan Malmute Club, which was in another part of Wisconsin, um, not only did weight pulls, but they did freight races. ISDRA ranked freight races, and that was in the 1980s. Um, and so that interested me. So I worked, put a team together, and I made all kinds of mistakes. <laughs> One of the things I did was I had a five mile, the, the freight race was 10 miles long. I had a five mile trail over to Menominee Falls Park and back. And so that gave me the 10 miles, right? So I yeah. get in the race and we get five miles and they want to turn around. Oh, I no. can't get them to go forward. <laughs> I spent, I don't know how long <laughs> and ended up leading them. Yeah. So we eventually finished the race. That was it. And Jamie Nelson happened to be there. And she won the race by 45 minutes over everybody else because most of the other teams in there were Malmute teams and she had her Alaska. Uh -huh. But she came over and congratulated me on finishing the race with my all-champion team. Yeah. And that's how I met her. Very then cool. from that, I found out um, John and Helen Schultz sent a dog to Jamie's to be trained for lead. Um, and I thought, I went to a seminar of hers the next summer that she did for the Tri-State Malmute Club. And I became, I, I realized that I know nothing really about sledding and yeah. training a lead dog. And so 
since she had agreed to do one for John and Helen, I called and asked her if she would do one for me. And she said, sure. So nice. I sent two dogs up to her and she trained them. And she said, when you come up to get them, I want you to stay for three days so I can show you what I did and what you're going to have to do to maintain this. Yeah. And that's how Jamie and I became very good friends. That's very cool. And of course, so then you took those, those lead dogs back uh, home with you and uh, put them into your, and your then team. And much better in the freight races. <laughs> yeah. Yes. A little that's bit of experience for them and you. Freight racing team that, that finally finally won something. I always did weight pulls. We had a lot of weight pulls in the in the Wisconsin area and I always weight pulled the dog and my dogs did well in weight pulls. Um, I really enjoyed that. Um, and But that was how I got to know Jamie. So what happened was um, I Jamie had finished the Iditarod, had done the Iditarod and she had also won, I think the Bear Grease four times and the, the Marquette Midnight Run several times. And she was talking about a challenge. <laughs> and I said to her, I've always wanted Malmutes to run the Iditarod. How would you like, if I furnished the team, <laughs> <laughs> would you consider doing it? <laughs> and uh, she thought about it for a while. And um, yeah, actually what had happened, when, when she completed the Iditarod race, uh, a, a couple of advertising companies came to her kennel and wanted, were interested in using her team in ads. And when they saw that they were Alaskan Huskies, not, didn't look like sled dogs, right? That everybody uh -huh. expects sled dogs to look like. They backed off. And so I said to her, "What? this was in 89, I said to her, I'll bring you a litter of Malmute puppies if you want to train them for a um, a, a team to do commercials. And she takes Santa Claus into, you know, several of the different places. And so that I took the, of the litter, um, the double H litter up, which was out of Luke and um, Princess Nikita Snowcloud. And she kept um, six males and a bitch out of that litter. And, um, and she trained, she, she had over 500 miles on them by the time they were 13 months old. Wow. And that's, and so that was the basis of the Iditarod team. Then I furnished more dogs for her, but those were, she, she sent Harmony home, the female. She said, she's nothing but a cheerleader. She jumps up and down and says, let's go, let's go. And then let's all the males do the work. So she sent her back home. <laughs> but the, the, the five males she kept, four of them ended up on the team. One of them broke his toe in September before the race, and he couldn't. Uh, so therefore, he couldn't run. So the, right. But the rest of them did. The other four males were on the team, and two of them were, the, were her main leaders. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's how it started. And Jamie was... Uh, she likes a challenge, and that was a challenge. Uh, she um, did she do the qualifiers with them as well? No, she since she'd already run the Iditarod. You don't have to do it with the with the team. You have to do it. The uh, musher has to be the qualified. Mm -hmm. the, the qualified, and so no, she did not have to run the, them as a qualifier. She ran them in a in the Solon Springs race up there. 
um, which is, I don't remember how, how long it was, but I had the red lantern from that one because it was most, again, you know, basically Alaskan Huskies that are running it. Yep. And, uh, but she wanted to run a couple of races with them just to make sure that, you know, all the dogs pa passing was the biggest, her biggest concern was to make sure yeah. that all, the teams could pass her without any problems because Malmutes have a very bad reputation with mushers as being fighters. And mm -hmm. she didn't want to have any issues with that. So yep. she spent a lot of time and Jan Richards um, had a, an Alaska uh, Malmute team and she, she left her job in November and came up with her team and practiced so that Jamie could not only practice with her and her Alaskan team. Mark Sapansky was a good friend of mine. And he went up in he went up in the summer before and to help her so that they could run both the Malmute team and her Alaskan team because she ran the the bear grease with her Alaskan team before we went up to um, the Iditarod. And so if it hadn't been for those two people, um, we this never could have been accomplished. <laughs> yeah. How long were the Plus dogs husband, up with her training? Of course. Of course. Pardon? How long were the dogs up with her um, training before the race? Was it well, a year, a year and a half? The, the six, uh, yeah, she had the five dogs from 1989, okay, and, and they ran in 94. So they were five years old. And then when she finally decided that she would con consider doing it, which would probably have been about, I'm not sure exactly when, whether it was 90, um, 92 91 or 92, um, I started sending other dogs up there for her to try and decide whether or not she wanted to run them. It was and totally up to her whether or not she wanted to keep them. She usually ran ran them. Some of them, some of them came back to me, and uh, most of them she kept, but a few of them came back to me um, that she just didn't feel we're gonna we're gonna make the team. Yep. Yeah. Now, I know that it does take an army to get everybody up there to that race, and I can only imagine the expenses that were involved with that. Um, you mentioned a few people already who were there to support you, um, but I imagine that you had to do a little bit of fundraising as well to get the team up there. You're right. <laughs> yes, it's very expensive and um, probably a lot more expensive than I ever dreamed of. Um, we had to build a new dog box for her truck because it was built for site uh, Alaskan Huskies down Malmutes. And um, Jamie donated all of her time. And she fed the dogs and never charged me anything for their food. Mark never charged me anything. He stayed up there and worked the whole time, the same way with Jan. Um, I, Jan Richards, I never, we never could have done that with, without those two. Um, so my job was to a great extent fundraising. What we did, one of the things we did was um, we sold certificates of sponsorship for one mile of the Iditarod, and we had um, we printed 1,049 of them. We didn't sell them all, but we sold quite a few, and that was um, part of it. Also, I could not. I was so surprised at how. Many of the dog people in other breeds supported us and sent donations. 
and 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 some of them were from breed clubs actually um mm -hmm. but all of them sent their good wishes, and some of them were individuals you know who they wanted to see they wanted to see show that show dogs could do what they were bred to do yeah not, not just malamutes but you know if malamutes can do it why can't another another breed do the same thing and i think that was the, the incentive for sending it for sending us money i i had quite a few litters um and i sold dogs and then i sold dogs after the race um drum went to japan harmony went to portugal um uh, trumpet went to australia they were all champions from that I sold, you know, in order to help pay for the race. Yeah, sold some dogs that That's, I would have would have kept, but I needed needed right. the money. Right. I love that the you know the show people and the purebred dog people came out to support you too, even outside of the breed, because I I love this story for so many reasons, and a big part of that is that there seems to be this idea amongst some people that show dogs cannot be working dogs and working cannot be show dogs. And I think this is just such a brilliant example that they can and should be able to do both. I, I just love it. So I'm, I love that the other purebred right. people came out to support you as well. They did. And, and it, some of them have surprised me like Lassa Opsis. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, um, but, but I think that the support was there because they wanted to make they want they were hoping that show dogs no matter if it was their breed or not could do what they were bred to do and that we weren't just you know not capable of doing their original job that most right dog breeds of dogs can do yeah Jamie had the dogs for a while and was training them. I assume that she gave you progress reports and kind of let you know how they were doing and how training was going. What, you mentioned passing as being one of her concerns. Did she ever bring up any other challenges or any other things that you thought were interesting about how their training was going? Well, she did have problems with dog fights. You got to remember she had five, five females. She had 10 intact males. On the yeah. Team. Yep. That's and I don't a lot. Know, but when I started at Malmutes, the judges were happy to have only four or less in the ring so they could put one in each corner because Malmutes were that aggressive. And when we started, when Malmutes start, came through the door to go into the, to the ring area, people would holler, the Malmutes are coming and the way was parted so you could let them through. I mean, that's how aggressive they were. Yeah. Um, by, by this time, you know, by the 1990s, a lot of that had been, uh, people had learned to take them to puppy training classes, to start disciplining them young so that they were not nearly as aggressive. But that doesn't mean that Malmutes don't want to fight. Yeah. They, they lo love a good fight. <laughs> and, that's, and so that was a big problem for her. Um, she said she never could have run this without Jacob, the lead dog. He did not want to fight and he kept the line tight and he kept it drawn out so that she never had more than a four dog fight. Right. Um, I've had six of them in a pile more than once. 
when I was running my freight race team. Uh, she would, if she'd ever had all 15 of them a pile, I don't know what she would have done, you know, but yeah. she said because of him and the fact that he kept his lead, his lead tight and stood out and didn't turn around and come back into the fight, she was able to keep them from fighting with each other. There had a couple yeah. of other problems with him because the show talks. One of them was <laughs> cameras. Every uh -oh. time they saw a camera, <laughs> they wanted to stop and pose. Yep. So I had to go. I went up to Jamie's and I took her ATV and I ran to the corner with a cam, the next corner with a camera, and I got out in the road with my cameras if we were going to take a picture. And she had to make them go past me because they all wanted to stop. Yep. And uh, finally, I mean, but she really had to work on that because. You know, show dogs, a camera means pose, right? Uh-huh. The same way I had I had uh, a vet, both a veterinarian and one of the volunteers come up to me uh, during the race. One was during the race and one was after the race. And they, the um, vet came up to me at a, at a restaurant and, and he said, are you from the Malmia team? And I said, yes. And he said, well, I got to tell you this. He said, I go, I was one of the vets on the ride and I went over to the Malamute team and I was look, just looking at them uh, casually and getting ready and then getting ready to, um, you know, check their temperature. And I reached in my pocket for the thermometer and the whole team stood up and wagged their tails. They're <laughs> and like I was treating bait out. <laughs> yeah. Treat. How funny and is one that? One of the volunteers told me the same thing. She put her pot, hand in her pocket when she was in front of the team and the whole team stood up and wagged their tails and said, okay, where's the treat? <laughs> so they didn't forget they were show dogs even on the race, but yeah, but um, <laughs> that's and great. Jamie, the first year that she, she was working on this, I took, uh, I think two or three of the dogs back to my house during the summer when, when she wasn't running them to finish their championships. And when I brought them back, um, she said to me, we're not doing this again. She said I had to completely change their attitude from show dog to working dog, to team dog, not working, but yeah. team dog. Yeah. She said they get, they lost their team dog attitude and they got that, aren't I wonderful, I'm the best one here attitude, which, which is what you want in a show dog. Yeah. When you guys were at the Iditarod and you were, you know, following along with their race, how did you and Jamie feel like their performance was in the race? How did they do? I think she was very pleased. She was very pleased with their performance. Um, and so were the other mushers, which was, was, which was really nice. Um, when I flew out to McGrath, because I don't know how many people know, but when she was in the uh, Dodge Lodge at, I think, Roan Roadhouse, which is one of the first checkpoints. Um, the gas heater in there malfunctioned. She happened to wake up and she tried to walk out of and she could not. She had to crawl out of the Dodge, uh, the Dodge Lodge, they call it, which was a tent. Okay. And so she realized that the other mushers in there were being asphyxiated. She tried to call in and wake them up. Nobody would wake. So she called for help. And Beth Baker happened to be outside uh, with outside of the tent. 
and she came in with Jamie and they hauled uh, the um, people out. She fast fastened a um, oxygen mask. She happened, would you believe this? She happened to be a respiratory doctor who was running oh the race. God. And she fastened, she fastened a, a mask out of a plastic bag and, and uh, uh, used a welding oxygen tank from a home that was nearby and brought, brought the other three mush, I think it was three mushers, two. And then the, the Iditarod uh, Trail Committee insisted that they stay there and take their 24 hour because they didn't want them to go on without knowing that they were perfectly all right. right. And Beth Baker right. stayed with them. So um, that was part of the, <laughs> the bad problem was from that, they had very warm temperatures after that and the snow melted on the, on the rivers. And so the dogs had to go through overflow when they crossed these different rivers. And Beth Baker told me, uh, I saw her, I flew out to McGrath um, because I couldn't figure out what happened to Jamie, why she wasn't progressing as planned. Mm -hmm. And um, so I flew out to McGrath and Beth Baker was there. And she said, she said, you know, Jamie, my dogs and, and a couple of other teams that they were all traveling together wouldn't go through the overflow. But when Jamie got there, the mammoths would go through the overflow and the other teams would follow. And then they would go <laughs> on ahead. And she said they did this two or three times. Um, but that's probably had a lot to do with the fact that their feet were not, did not hold up really well. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know that. Um, but I can't imagine that dogs are going through water and then back onto snow. Um, that, that's very good for them. Yeah. Feet, you know, it would take a lot of the moisture and the oil out of it. In fact, over half of the of the dogs that oh, year right. were dropped by the halfway point of the race. Because Whether of the conditions. Whether they were dropped by foot problems, what they were dropped right. for, I don't know. But that's very unusual to have that many, many dogs dropped. So yeah. then when she left McGrath, I, um, I, I flew out to McGrath. And when she left, she made me go in the musher house because she was afraid the mammoths would want to come over and meet me. <laughs> so, and she took off and, and um, then the temperatures went like to 20 below. Mm -hmm. So the next, so they went from, you know, 40 degrees to 20 below. And, and that was when she started having, having foot problems with them. Yep. Not the whole team. We never did figure it out. We um, um, we inked the feet of the dogs and moved them on paper to see if some the ones who had foot problems were moving incorrectly or you know, and mm -hmm. uh, measured the feet. Couldn't find any differences. I, I to this day, I, in fact, I even rented. This was you know after the race. I even rented a, a thing that would try to um, measure the heat in their legs and their feet, thinking mm -hmm. that perhaps dogs who had more heat in their feet would have more foot problems. Nothing correlated. <laughs> Don't to this day have any idea what it was. How many miles of the race did they end up? 680. Okay. 
Okay, so they did quite they a bit. 680 in in seven days. Yeah, which included their 24 hours, so they actually did the running in six days. That's it was they averaged over 80 miles a day, and that's a lot for a freighting team. A yeah. good freighting team in Alaska, they figured 30, 35 miles a day was a good day. Um, yeah. So for, for them to do 80 miles, to average 80 miles a day was was really a uh, good for for that breed. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So when you brought the team home, did they go back to Jamie or did they come back to you? Both. <laughs> some of them stayed at Jamie's. Um, some and the rest came back to me. Um, she, uh, Jacob went to Israel to Eric Schwartz uh, for a year, and and uh, he got his Israeli championship on him and and some of his internet, couple of his dinner international legs. And uh, but then he came back to my house. Jamie was had um, she had some problems after because of that uh, almost asphyxiation. She had some some problems with that, and um, she continued to race with her Alaska with her Alaskan team. Uh, but she really didn't do anything more with the Malmuths. A few of them stayed at her house. I, I just I didn't have room for 15 Malmets to come back all of at one time. Yeah. So it was kind of, you know, up over a period of time, they came back to me. And you and, continued uh, working them. I imagine you learned quite a bit about working dogs through this whole process. So how did that change how you continued working the dogs? Um, I... I never really had the, the interest in race, the freight racing, and there were no more freight races anymore. Israel didn't do them anymore. Mm -hmm. And the other kind of racing is, you know, you could you can race and come in at the at the end, um, but they're not racing dogs. That's not what they were meant to do. So yeah. I basically did more weight pulling and pleasure. We did a lot of pleasure running. Um, we there was a group of us. Um, that went up to Nicolay camp every Christmas and also in February for um, at least eight days, sometimes 10, and ran dogs. And this was wonderful. There was about, oh, I, I called uh, Sharon and Larry Kalis for the one that started it and arranged for the camp. And the um, we had more than 10 miles of trails without having to cross roads or, or um, interfere with the snowmobile trails. These were, these were dog, these were horse trails in the summertime and we could run mm -hmm. the dogs on them in, in the winter. And so we would go up there and, and rent uh, the lodge there and run dogs. Um, there was about oh, anywhere from 20 to 30 of us. And it was always over a hundred Malmets. And I, a couple of years, I, checked and over over 50 percent were champions isn't that wonderful super, super cool yeah that of all of those dogs 100 dogs are running on teams and 50 percent of them are champions and some yeah. of them are too young to be champions but and some of and but some of the people were not were not interested in showing they were only interested in running but a lot of them were interested in both 
And yeah, and that was great. And then also Jamie had a, a outing she called Button Box, and that was four days in the end of September. Um, up at her place, near her place, and we used to go up the with there. Jan Richards went and and uh, I did and a couple of other people at times those were mostly Alaskan Husky teams um, so they went out and they were gone <laughs> but we but we went out afterwards and uh, and and ran the trails and then following that Jamie had what she called the big dog bash at her house and that was all Malmutes well I shouldn't say that there were some a couple of teams of Eskimo dogs, but basically they were freighting dogs, you know, not racing dogs. And, yeah. and we used her trails and, and she, uh, she would always help us if we needed help. Yeah. So sounds like you might've won did, Jamie we, over we a little a bit of, on the Malmutes. Huh? It sounds like I'm you might've won Jamie that. over a little bit on the Malamutes. <laughs> Yes, I think she likes the Malmies. They're a challenge for her, but she likes them. And she does these boot camps um, at her house now, and you can come with anything. I mean, at Buttonbox one year, there was two Great Danes and a Beagle <laughs> on, on one person's team. <laughs> <laughs> and I've also seen some Alcons. And um, so if you uh, want to do dog sledding, she's the person to go to if you have an unusual breed. Yeah. <laughs> um, she's just a, an excellent trainer to just really uh, un unbelievable, just knows dogs and, and is not afraid to uh, jump in where there's any kind of problem and help. Yeah. Which is good. Which is great. It is good. Yeah. You need so, a mentor uh, like that. She's still doing that. <laughs> That's wonderful. It's a wonderful way. Um, I was so lucky, of course, because I had these wonderful trade dogs from the Iditarod. And then I could add my young dogs in, you know, with them. And that's so much easier than starting from scratch. You know, you put yep. them in with a trained team and and that's easy. And I'm still running dogs, yeah. believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Only I use an ATV because I have to have steering and brakes. And I can't fall off. Yep. <laughs> but you work. make it work. So. That's great. I imagine that coming back from an experience like this, it seems like it would have to give you new insight and, you know, inspire you in different ways with your breeding program. How did you, did you find that your breeding program took a turn at all after this race or did you, you know, were you focusing on different things? No. Um, I can't say that I was later on when I needed a lead dog, I didn't pick the one I thought was going to make the number one special for me. I picked the puppy that when I took him for a walk, wanted to be ahead of everybody else. Um, so that was, that was probably the one thing that, that, that made a big difference, not in my breeding program, but in the, in the dogs that I kept. Okay. When I was showing dogs and and having a top winning dog was very important, 
I always picked the dog who walked out, who came out of the litter and said, I'm better than the rest of you. Well, that kind of a dog does not always make the best team dog. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so from that standpoint, yes, I probably chose to keep dogs with a little less of that attitude once I stopped showing. Mm-hmm. Um, but but still, the confirmation has got to be there. You know, yeah. most important is is having a is having the correct confirmation. Um, I don't care. There, you know, if the ear set's wrong, if the eyes are light colored, um, you know, and the tail's too tight. Yes, tail tail too tight can also have a bad croup. But we did a lot of measuring when we tried to figure. We had so many bad tails years ago that the measuring committee tried to do some measuring and see if we could determine why they were met, and we didn't find we didn't find any correlation. So that's another thing that from a from the standpoint of running my dogs wouldn't make any difference. Right. But from the standpoint of showing would, um, but basic structure is still, that's still the most important thing. Good feet, good bone, and being able to, and a solid top line and a strong rear end, because that's what pulls. And for weight pulling, yeah, yeah you've got to have that too. So, and I've, done a lot of weight pulling over the years so so it really didn't make a big difference in my in my um, breeding program what made a difference was in um, somewhat my care okay I um, I found out from Jamie that starting them young does not hurt them in fact I I would like to see a study done by on Alaskan Malamutes on when their bones actually uh, finish a calcifications, because mm-hmm. you know they say with big dogs that it takes over a year, and yet, um, and so they said, you know, don't don't do heavy work with them, don't do a lot of exercise with them. This is what they tell Great Dane people and. And all the those, and that's that's not what I found out. I start my puppies out pulling when they're eight weeks old. They pull a little tiny tire. Um, I've got them running in the team by the time they're four, four months or five months, but we go slow. Mm-hmm. It's not fast. You don't want to scare them. Hasn't hurt I don't hurt them at all. I like Jamie did. She had fifteen five hundred miles on those dogs. Every one of them x-rayed either good or excellent. Their OFA excerpt. So it mm-hmm. didn't. And the other thing I do is that when a dog dies that I belongs to me, I take it in and I have it re-x-rayed. Because I want to know if that dog's hips deteriorated. If it does, then if it did, then I don't want to double up on it in my breeding program and I do a lot of close breeding and mm-hmm. I have found no if the last one I did um out here when I took him in he had been an OFA excellent and the vet looked at the he died at 12 when I took him in and the vet looked he said we could send this in and get another OFA excellent so the the early the early work is not hurting them from that standpoint 
And, yeah. and it just makes sense to me. If you, when you read about the Eskimos, the puppies were born in the spring. Fall puppies never survived. The Eskimos had them in harness in the fall. And their fall is <laughs> probably September when they're on snow yeah. in, in, in the Arctic, in the high Arctic, which means those puppies are only five to six months old when they are working. And I just suspect that over centuries, those dogs had to mature and lay down and, and their bones had to become mature by the time they were six months old. I don't know, nobody's mm -hmm. ever done, nobody's ever done a study, but I think it would be interesting. Yeah, I, I think it'd be that, super interesting. That, yeah, I found that working the dogs early doesn't hurt them and, and doesn't have anything to do with their, they don't break down faster. They, you know, that it, it actually improves. I think mm -hmm. it improves there. The other thing was Jamie's feeding program. Mm -hmm. um, she feeds the dogs. She gives them less than five minutes to finish the meal and she takes it away and they don't get fed till the next day. And she said, when you're doing long distance mushing, you have to have dogs eat. If they don't eat, you have to take them out of the team. So we've trained them. She started them very young. You, you eat it immediately or you go hungry till tomorrow. And I do yeah. the same thing and I don't have any bad eat. I don't have, if a dog doesn't eat in my kennel, it's on the way to the vet. Yeah. That means there's something wrong, seriously wrong with it because otherwise they eat. And the third thing that I've started doing is my dogs are all tethered rather than kenneled. And I have found that they've averaged two years longer lifespan. They don't gain weight. They stay on the performance dog food their entire life. And um, they have, because they have so much better muscle tone than a dog in a kennel. I'm not saying tie one dog out in the backyard. I'm talking yeah. about, a, you know, multiple dogs. Yeah. I also found that because they don't have a fence between them, mm -hmm. you don't have any fence fighting. Yep. You have much less aggression towards each other because the fence is not there to protect them. Mm -hmm. And um, I did a study on this because, you know, there's a lot of animal rights people want to think that tethering dogs is cruel. Right. And so I, I had dogs in kennels. I have, to, I have some kennels. My older dogs with, are in kennels and my puppies are in, you know, my puppies were in kennels. So I have kennels. So mm -hmm. what I did was I, took my stopwatch and I um, timed how long it took me to feed, how long it took me to clean runs and how long it took me to water. And I also counted the negative commands. When you walk up with a food dish to a kennel, the dog is on the fence, right? Usually on the door. So it's get off or back off or whatever you say. Same way with every time you go in with tethering, there are absolutely no negative commands. And it took me one third of the time to feed, oh my gosh. clean, and water the dogs that are tethered than those that are in kennels. Huge so difference. If you can imagine a musher's got 100 dogs, 
<laughs> yeah. The difference between feeding, watering, and then I don't I don't have this in paperwork in front of me, but I figured out how many negative commands in a year and how many negative commands for uh, uh, 12 years of lifetime. And we're talking over 29,000 negative commands from a, can yeah. a kennel versus none when they're tethered. Yeah. Well, and that time, you know, that's going to wear on you and wear on the dogs and the dogs are, you know, going to start to feel some negative associations with that. So improving, um, right. you know, your communication with them certainly is important. Yeah. So I would personally never go back to you. when the dogs get older and I have, you know, they tend to get tangled. If they tend to get tangled in the chain, then I put them back into the kennels. So a lot of our listeners have dogs and are just kind of getting started in the sport. And of course, I always want to encourage people to work their show dogs and show their working dogs so that we can, you know, keep, especially for, for our breed, right? The Malamute, keep them really doing what they were intended to do to be working dogs. And I think that that's a really important component, but it's obviously not easy. And to have a working team, we need lots of dogs. Do you have any tips for people that might be started or kind of have that as a goal? Um, you know, any words of wisdom from you that you feel like you've learned along the way? Well, I start the puppies with a, with a small tire, or you, you can use a log with a, a hook in it or you know, just get them used to time, to pulling. And I, you make it a long line so they don't feel like it's being, they're ch it's chasing them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And you start out, I have what I call a puppy exercise program that I used to give my people. And, and it started out with walking, just, you know, walking half a mile, a mile. And then, and then we started the pulling. Some people put water in a milk jug. I let them pull that. You always want to stop before they get tired. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that it's fun. And and we praise them for doing it. And um, so it, and you don't do that every day. You just do that maybe twice a week at the most. And then you, you alternate that with other things. Then I start them in harness in the team around four to five months, depending on the dog. If you have a dog who's really awkward, you know, some dogs grow together. Everything fits right. together. Others, the rear end grows and the front doesn't. And <laughs> if you've got a dog that's awkward, then that's not the, that's not the way to put, you don't put them in a team because they're going to have a hard right. time. They can still do the pulling, but, but, but if you can, I put them in the team and I go slow and I mean slow. Not slow for a racing team, slow for a Malmute team, you know, two, three miles an hour. And they have to get used to, they're going to get tangled. They're going to jump on the dog next to them. Um, put them next to a dog who will tolerate it. If you got, if you haven't got a dog that will tolerate a puppy, you know, doing that, then then just put them in separately. Yeah, but go really slow. And again, you know, the normal thing, praise, uh, make a big deal out of, out of them going. and then. It's a matter of of increasing it. I also always, since I show all my working dogs, I also bike them because I want them to learn to extend both in front and in rear. And they're not in when they're pulling; they're not 
eventually they they will pull and extend but but if you if you really want them to move out you know get full extension i bike them and i bike mm -hmm. them at all different speeds and i start the biking usually at about six months um provided you can keep them off the hard pavement you don't want to bike them on hard pavement when they're young and um so i alternate the biking with the and people who run i'm not a runner but i have had people who are who are runners and they take their dogs with them and i had i had one lady she ran five miles every day with her six-month-old dog and he never i mean he never had any problems so it was you know that that to me was an, again that the extra early exercise really doesn't help it doesn't hurt these dogs um, right then you can go from anywhere you can go into weight pulling you can go in because they learn to pull you can go into to, um sledding with them you can go into backpacking with them i haven't done enough backpacking so that i would want so that i would recommend when you would actually put a full pack on them i haven't done enough i haven't done that so i can't i can't say one way or the other but you could certainly put a pack on them with just a little bit of stuff in it at any yeah. time if you wanted to get used to that. Yeah. And the more, you know, training and general working that we do with the dogs, the stronger they get. I'm sure that when you brought your team back from the Iditarod, the amount of muscle tone that they had put on from all of that work, I'm sure it shocked the judges in the show ring. <laughs> you bet. And, you know, I never had a judge complain about harness wear. Harness wear. Never. That's nice. I don't, I didn't even mention it. And, and there wasn't that much, you know, with a good coat, you can pretty much cover it up. But even if there was, you know, some harness marks on them, it, it didn't seem to make any difference in the show ring. Awesome. Very nice. Nice to know. And nice to know that there's some educated judges out there that understand what that is. And, you know, hopefully we'll even applaud you for it instead of <laughs> punishing you for it. Well, Nancy, thank you so much for joining us. I had a wonderful time talking with you and hearing a little bit about your story. It's it's truly inspiring. And I, I hope that it gets other people out there working with their dogs. And hopefully, maybe someday we can have another uh, Alaskan Malamute team at the Iditarod. I think that would be great. I'd be very <laughs> happy to see that happen. And I, yeah. I, I asked Jamie about that. Um, because they're so fast today that, that I said, I don't think a Malmi team, they take them out of the race because if you get so far behind, they take Alaskans out. And she said, right. I'm not sure they would. She said, they liked having the Malmis there. The, she said when she ran the, the race again in 2000 and she got out to the, um, Eskimo villages, um, out on the ocean they all came over to her and said oh we were so hoping you were going to run the Malmi teams the Malmi team oh. again and when we <laughs> and and when and she also said that when she got to Nikolai which is another Eskimo uh, town they closed everybody in the school they brought all the school kids out to see the Malmi's because they wanted them to see the dogs that their ancestors used to have so that's really she, cool she doesn't say that it's not possible she she you know she said you know perhaps perhaps they would allow it um just because it is a 
in bringing bringing history back to the to, to the Alaska, right? To Alaska, right? And that was that one of the things cool. that that um, the whole reason for the Alaskan for that Iditarod was to maintain the trail and to keep the Alaskan dogs from being completely eliminated in favor of the snowmobile. So that was Joe Reddington's goal was to save the the sled dogs, which he did with that race. Yeah. Yep. Very cool. Well, Nancy, thank you again so much for your time. I really, really enjoyed chatting. Thank you. And I hope uh, lots of people will start working their dogs because it sure is fun and the dogs love it. They just love it. Yep. Oh my gosh, what a cool interview. I loved getting to sit down and chat with Nancy. Obviously, I'm a little bit biased as an Alaskan Malamute lover and owner myself, but hearing such an inspiring story about somebody who wasn't born into this world, who just went in there and accomplished her goals and lived her dreams is so cool. And I think that there's a little bit of that that all of us can relate to. No matter how long you've been in dogs, everybody's got goals. And it just goes to show you that if you really set your mind to something and work hard to get there, you can do it. So I hope that that is inspiring for you. Of course, any true story about a dog doing what they were bred for also just gives you a bit of those feels. If you want to learn a little bit more about the Storm Cloud Alaskan Malamutes and their kennel, you can visit them on their website www.stormcloudkennels.com. So, until next time, have fun chasing tails on the trail.